down in Matthew 28. So if you have your Bible, your Bible app, or whatever uh, other device, most of the scripture will be taken from the NIV, the New International Version. I have one section that I want to share with you from the message, the, the paraphrase, the message, because it really amplifies some thoughts uh, on that particular portion. So from today, just think of the calendar for 2018. It's exactly 10 months till Christmas. There you go. But much more importantly, it's exactly five weeks till Easter. Check it out for yourself and see what day Easter falls on this year. And I'll tell you, I'm not fooling about today's message. That's a hint. I just sense a compelling spirit to deliver this installment and to start unpacking this for you. And it's going to be, I hope, a great parcel that everybody can take home and take into their hearts and use in their lives. You know, the atheist always thinks that he or she knows more than anyone. They know more than you. They know more than me. They know basically more than the rest of the world. And they're certainly smarter than anybody else, smarter than you, smarter than me. And I was telling them that doesn't take a whole lot. It's kind of like the teacher, the know-it-all teacher, one day in an early elementary class, and she was teaching some uh, basic math, and she said, now, if I give you two cats and another two cats and another two, how many would you have? Johnny just jumped right up on that one. He answered. He said, seven. She said, now, class, listen carefully. If I gave you two cats, then I gave you two more, and then I gave you two more, how many would you have? Johnny jumped right up and answered immediately. Seven, teacher said, now, class, let me put it to you differently. If I gave you two apples and another two apples and another two apples, how many would you have? Johnny jumped right up. said, six. Good. Now, if I gave you two cats and another two cats and another two cats, how many would you have? Johnny jumped right up and answered. Seven. Teacher said, Johnny, where in the world do you get seven from? Johnny said, because I've already got a cat. <laughs> See, sometimes we think we know more than the other guy, right? And we really don't. Except for the atheist, he knows everything. By the way, if you have an atheist friend, and uh, he's a friend of yours, and you talk to that person, um, just be sure to let them know that their name is guess where? It's in print. Guess where it is? Right in the Bible. Isn't that awesome? Oh, it's funny. Uh, really? Psalm 14.1. Yep. Psalm 14.1 says, here it is. Here it is. You ready? The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. You say, why is that verse there? Because only a fool would say that. Are you being unkind to people? Not on purpose. I didn't write that, nor did I say that. I'm just repeating something that's in the Word of God. Psalm 14 and verse 1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Do you realize that Jesus stands alone as a man who claimed to be alive even before Abraham? He said, before Abraham was, I am. And he also predicted that he would come back from the grave. 
Those are two outstanding characteristics and truths about our Savior, the Lord Jesus. And so, for a while this morning, I want to talk to you about what I call the incomparable seven. And these, my friends, are seven words that have shaken the world to its core. We've all heard about the seven sayings of Jesus from the cross, or sometimes we entitle a message, the seven words of the cross. But these seven words that I want to zone in on today were spoken at the empty tomb, not at the cross, but at the tomb of Jesus, and they were spoken in a cemetery. How, do you, how many of you know that cemeteries sometimes can kind of, kind of spook people out? They can kind of be spooky places. Yeah, sometimes you, people don't just say, well, I think I'll just go over and spend the afternoon at the cemetery. I mean, people just oh, don't tend to be that way, most people. Well, Ian wasn't that way because after a long evening in the pub, this Scotsman thought he'd take a shortcut to the house and he walked through a dark cemetery and he actually accidentally fell into a freshly dug grave. And Ian tried everything he could think of to climb out of that hole, but he discovered it was just too deep, so he decided the best thing to do is just hunker down. I'll put my coat over me and I'll go to sleep and somehow somebody will find me in the morning. Only problem with that is about an hour later, he was awakened by the sound of another inebriated man who fell in the same hole. And the second guy didn't see Ian in there. And he starts to climb out. And Ian woke from his sleep and he watched as the young man tried unsuccessfully to climb out of the grave. And finally Ian said, stop your trying. You cannot get out. <laughs> Believe me when I say that young man jumped all the way out of that grave. In Matthew 28, we read about the only person in all of history who ever walked out of a grave and is still alive today. So let's read it and read about it. If you have your Bible, follow along if you would, or your, your uh, device, whatever you're using, or we'll have it on the screen and we can kind of read it together. And I, I just get thrilled when you decide you'd like to read with me because it helps me stay focused. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. This sounds very innocent to start with. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. I've always pictured that in my mind, what that must have looked like. And uh, some of this, if you could just have a little bit of an imagination, just kind of get that imagery in your mind. Okay, moving right along. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. So are you picturing this now? The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. Became like dead men. Okay. The angels said to the women, do not be afraid. For I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. Listen, folks, this is all fresh in the memories of these people. We're just talking over, if we call it a long weekend, we're just talking a few days here. And all of these wounds and all of these memories and all of these thoughts and all of the future planning had all just, just kind of mushed together. And, and what are we going to do? And there was a lot of hopelessness thrown in. And so... Uh, the, the angel said, I know who you're looking for. It's Jesus who was crucified. And then he says in verse 6, he's not here. 
He is not here just as he said. He predicted that he would come back from the dead. Come and see the place where he lay. So now it's getting interesting. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, this is pertinent to the story, he has risen from the dead and he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So what do women do? Thank God for the women. Thank God for the women. Last at the cross, first at the tomb, first to spread the message of the gospel. So the women, so the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy. I love that, that, that juxtaposition there. And ran to tell his disciples. And suddenly, 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 <laughs> I didn't see him in the scenario at all. I don't know what happened here. Greetings, he said. And they came to him and did what? And worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers, Go to Galilee. There they will see me. This is twice now the ladies have been reassured with the words, Do not be what? Afraid. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. And when the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers, ah, pay for play here, telling them, you are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. Let that sink in. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers, the soldiers, no, and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews for how long? To this very day and this very day. Thank you. Thank you. Well, let me establish our foundation for first and foremost. And I'll begin by saying the resurrection of Jesus from the dead changes everything. And I'll go on and explain that and, 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 and build on that in, in just a moment. In the second chapter of the Gospel of John, Jesus ran the money changers out of the temple. That was the very first time he did it. And they asked him to prove that he had the authority to do such a thing. And he said this in John 2.19. He said, you destroy this temple, meaning not the, not the physical edifice. He didn't mean that. He meant his body, his physical body. He said, you destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. So as we talk about the resurrection this morning, I want to first speak of the miracle because indeed, this is a miracle. I always hesitate to call any miracle that we read in the Bible, and we read of a lot of them, I always hesitate to call any one of them the greatest miracle in history. See, when we examine the, 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 the we, say, we think of the cross, you think of the cross of Calvary, and, and we have to say, that's got to be one of the greatest miracles in history. That God's Son 
would lay down his own life as the offering for sin for all of mankind. But as we examine the resurrection of Jesus, I can say without reservation, fear, or failure, that I believe it is the greatest miracle in all of human history. It's at the heart, it is the heart, it is the very essence of the Christian message. It's everything that you and I believe. It's the cornerstone. It's the foundational absolute. It is eternity's gateway arch. It's the call of the great getting up morning. It is the central pillar. It is the pulse. It is the rhythm. It is the power. It is the strength. It is the underpinning. It is the anchor. It is the bedrock. It is the cardinal tenet of our body of faith. And it is the conclusive and final QED, quad erat demonstrandum, which was to be demonstrated or proven, has been demonstrated, indicating what total and full and complete and altogether completion of the project. Amen, 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 and amen. Please don't applaud me, but let's give God glory in the house this morning. How do we know the resurrection happened? Let's consider two sources. We don't want to muddy this, this whole stream. Let's just consider two sources. Just as angels announced the birth of Jesus to those shepherds in the fields around Bethlehem, and it seems like nobody has a problem with that. Saint and sinner alike, we all sing those songs and recite those stories and listen to those plays at Christmas time. And nobody has a problem with that. We, 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 we glue on some fake wings on the back of little kids and say, oh, they're, they're the angels, and aren't they cute? Little devils become little angels for a day. And, and, and so God sent an angel to announce the resurrection. And when the women arrived, the angel of the Lord was sitting on this huge stone, you just read it to me, and he made an important announcement. And these are the seven words that rocked the world. And the world has never been the same since those words were uttered by the angel. He is not here. He has risen. Take note of the incomparable seven. When most people visit Jerusalem, the Holy Land, and take in all of those great historic sites, usually they find their way to a very special place outside the walls uh, of Jerusalem called the Garden Tomb. There's a rock-faced cliff which looks very much like a face of a skull, and that's why it's Golgotha, the place of a skull. And not far from there, archaeologists discovered an empty tomb. It was a very expensive tomb. Uh, it, had a, it had places in there for several bodies. You could tell somebody of great means owned this tomb. Interesting, I, I found that um, not only was it an expensive tomb, but it had to be the tomb, if it was Jesus' tomb, of a wealthy man. 
The Bible in Isaiah 53, great chapter, 52 and 3, the Passion Passages, in verse 9 of uh, Isaiah 53, it, it says that the Messiah would make his grave with the rich. The New Testament says Jesus was placed in a tomb which belonged to Joseph of Arimathea, who was, uh, it just happened to be, a rather wealthy man. And the scripture says it was a new tomb and had never been used before. A few years ago when scientists took microscopic samples from the soil and the rocks around that tomb, they found no microscopic trace of human remains whatsoever. So if it was his tomb, Jesus was the first and the last to ever use it. The angel invited the women, come and see the place where he lay. I want to invite you this morning, I want to invite you to come and see and investigate that empty tomb. If you're in doubt or even have 1% of doubt in your mind, I want to give you the same invitation that the angel gave those ladies. Come and see where he lay. Look into, investigate this empty tomb. One of the greatest proofs of the resurrection is the fact no one has ever produced the corpse of Jesus, nor the burial clothes. Can we put that to rest? The Romans would never be convicted of murder in an American courtroom today. Why? Because there's no body. And if you're a skeptic, an atheist, or an agnostic, You've got to come up with a better answer to the question, what happened to the body of Jesus? According to the angel, here's what happened. He is not here. He has risen. There's an answer for you. I'm going to stick with that one. How about you? Not only was it communicated by the angel, it was confirmed by eyewitnesses. See, the absence of a body alone is not a compelling argument for the resurrection. But when you combine it with the fact that a living, breathing Jesus appeared on several occasions to his disciples and to several other people, you either have to say the account is fictional or Jesus really did come back from the dead. On that first, we're going to call it Sunday evening. They didn't name the days of the week like we do today, but let's call it Sunday evening. Jesus suddenly appeared to his disciples from behind closed doors. And by the way, I don't think there was any mention of him coming through a door. I think he just appeared to them, probably came through the wall. And he invited the disciples to feel his hands and feet. He said, if you're still kind of not sure, here I am. Check me out, like physically. And later, he even invited Thomas. He said, if you're still in doubt, he said, just thrust your hand into my side, into the wound. Now, can you imagine, I can't, the wonder and the awe and the borderline disbelief as the same folks who witnessed that savage crucifixion are now seeing and talking to and interfaced with the living, physically living Lord Jesus. Can you imagine what's going through Their minds, can you imagine how fast their hearts must have been beating? No wonder Thomas fell to his knees, John 20 and 28, and he cried, 
By the way, Thomas never, no record that Thomas ever touched Jesus, even though he was invited to, and a lot of people still call him Doubting Thomas. I think that's a very unfair title. He was the first one to bow down and say, My Lord and my God. Jesus didn't make one or two appearances. The Bible says during that 40-day stretch between the resurrection and his ascension back to heaven, he made numerous appearances. Paul's words, 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 4. He was raised on the third day, what? According to the scriptures. Wow, there's no doubt when you're reading something like that, and then Paul says, according to the scriptures. And he appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. Most, Paul said at that time, are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Now, there are two theories that skeptics have raised and they love to work on to explain away the resurrection. First, there's the stolen body theory. That is a claim that the disciples stole the body of Jesus. And that's not new because our text told us that the Jewish leaders cooked that one up and they bribed the Roman soldiers with some money to say the disciples of Jesus had stolen his body while they were asleep. Now, first of all, I don't, did you catch this? How many times have we read this portion of Scripture? But I wonder if you caught this. I mean, if, the, if they were asleep, how would they know who stole the body? Just asking. Yeah, the disciples came and stole him away while we were sleeping. Wow. Ever stop and think about that statement? E e even when they were presented with that bribe, well, you just, if anybody asks you, you just tell them that his disciples came and stole him away while you were asleep. And they bought that. And then they repeated it. Can you imagine that? That just doesn't make sense. The argument that the, they stole the body. If the disciples were dishonest enough to steal the body and fabricate that lie, surely they would do it for selfish gain. And what did, that, what did they get? What did the disciples get if that's what they did? I'll tell you what they got. They got torture. They got, they got beaten badly. They got some of them crucified upside down. Some of them beheaded. I mean, if that's what they were doing it for, they sure lost out on that deal. When faced with torture and death, don't you think maybe at least one of those 500 eyewitnesses would have changed the story and said, oh, you know what, don't believe that. We made that all up. We made that all up. But they went to their deaths, how? Claiming everyone to a man to have seen the risen Christ. I'll take it. I'll take it. Charles Colson, Chuck Colson, name ring a bell? He was, after a very tumultuous time in his life, he became a respected Christian leader and a very famous author. But in the early 1970s, he was sent to prison for being part of the cover-up of the Watergate scandal. At first, he and his friends lied, and they lied to federal investigators about their role so I think Chuck Colson is qualified to comment on lying 
to cover the truth. And if you don't know the Chuck Colson and the Watergate story, it's worth repeating, and it's worth your searching. Here's what he wrote about the claim that the disciples stole the body and lied about it. Quote Chuck Colson. If six Harvard and Yale-educated men could not stand a modicum of media scrutiny to protect the most powerful man on earth, how likely is it that 11 uneducated fishermen could, under, could withstand torture, imprisonment, and death to cover a hoax concerning an obscure Jewish rabbi? As incredible as the resurrection may seem, a cover-up is even more incredible, end of quote. The second hypothesis to explain away the miracle is what's called the swoon theory. This claims that Jesus really didn't die. He was merely rendered unconscious. And once he was laid in the cool tomb, whoo, he revived. Then he escaped. Of course, this theory doesn't go quite far enough for me to adhere to it because it doesn't explain how he's able to unwrap himself from 80 pounds of bandages soaked with spices prepared by Joseph of Arimathea, or indeed how he moved a stone from the door of the tomb, that stone weighing, weighing approximately two tons. Dr. J. Vernon McGee, that name, anybody ever heard of Dr. J. Vernon McGee? He's one of my favorite preachers of all time. Every chance I got, I listened to him. I read his books, preached his sermons, and heard him over and over. Dr. J. Vernon McGee was one of the, definitely one of my favorite Bible teachers. He's with the Lord now, but when he had his radio program, and by the way, I think all his radio programs are still rebroadcasting on certain stations. But anyway, that's enough of that. When he had his radio program, he was always reading letters that came in from the listeners, some good, some bad, some ugly. But anyway, this particular lady, in, in all seriousness and sincerity, she wrote him a nice letter, and she said, Dear Dr. McGee, our preacher said that on Easter, Jesus just swooned on the cross and that the disciples nursed him back to health. What do you think? So Dr. McGee replied, and he and he read his reply on the radio. Dear sister, beat your preacher with a leather whip, nail him to a cross, hang him in the sun for six hours, run a spear through his heart, embalm him, put him in an airless tomb for three days, then see what happens. Thanks for writing. Good answer. People are gracing pulpits of our land today who would say things like that lady's pastor said, and you know what? It, it's a real stretch to call him a preacher, a gospel preacher. It's a real stretch to call anybody like that a man or a woman of God. The angel declared something that I like repeating, and maybe you'll catch on before the morning's out and help me. He is not here. He has risen. And the disciples went to their graves. 
affirming that they had seen Jesus alive and in the flesh. If it, it, it was a miracle, but let, let's for a moment, let's go beyond the miracle and let's talk about the meaning of it all. I said as I started, and I'm going to repeat, the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. And if it hasn't changed you, I, you know what I've been praying? Through about half the night and a lot this morning, I've been praying that today will be your day to change. I've been praying that this will be your day to enter the kingdom of God, not play in church, not going along with most of it, not agreeing with 98% of what we say, but that you will be changed by the power of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and by no other means. The resurrection changes everything. Jesus was raised from the dead. Do you agree? Okay. So that we're in agreement, what does that mean for you and for me? A few things. Let me give you the first. It means that Jesus is more than a man. Some people say if there had been no resurrection, Jesus would still be remembered today simply as a great teacher. And I totally disagree. Had there been no resurrection, we would never even have heard of Jesus of Nazareth. His influence would have been buried with him in that tomb. He would have been among the thousands of obscure false messiahs and teachers from history who gathered to them a flock of followers who disbanded shortly after their leader's death. I don't believe that that carries any weight. Paul said this. In 1 Corinthians 15, if there's no resurrection, we're really a bunch of fools. And he contemplated that issue when he wrote this. And I'm, this is where I said we'd be, I'd be reading from the message, if I may. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 13 and 14, and then down, we'll drop down to parts of 19 and 20. Here's what Paul said. If there's no resurrection, he knew very full well there was, there's no living Christ. And face it, if there's no resurrection for Christ, everything we've told you is smoke and mirrors, and everything you've staked your life on is smoke and mirrors. I don't know what you're staking your life on right now, but I hope it's in the belief in eternity. I just hope with all my heart that that's what you're staking your life on today. And then it goes on. In verse 19, Paul said, if all we get out of Christ is a little inspiration for a few short years, we're a pretty sorry lot. But the truth is that Christ has been raised up. Scholars even agree. Woo! That among the major religions of the world, Christianity is the only faith. I want you to underscore that if you're note-taking the only faith that teaches the bodily resurrection from the dead of its founder. Buddhists teach uh, Gautama Buddha died at around age 80. He was cremated in India around 483 B.C. However, however, many Buddhists still make a, a, a pilgrimage to worship at the Temple of the Tooth in Sri Lanka. Why is it called that? It's because it's said to contain the right front tooth of Buddha. 
No question, that would take me to Sri Lanka. Abraham is considered the father of Judaism. If you go to the, 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 the Holy Land, you can visit the, the tomb of Abraham near Hebron. Then there's Muhammad. He died June 8th uh, in 632 A.D., around the age of 62 or 63. He's buried in Medina. And millions upon millions of Muslims visit his tomb in Saudi Arabia every year. I want you to notice this, and they'll tell you this. Muhammad never claimed to be God or that he would rise from the dead. Buddha never claimed to be omniscient or that he would rise from the dead. And then there's Hinduism, which is the world's third largest religion. It has no founder. It contains a, a, a broad range of philosophies, diversity of ideas on spirituality and traditions. It has no religious authorities. It has no ecclesiastical order. It has no governing body. It has no prophets. And it has no binding holy book. But sadly, it has no divine savior rising from the dead and walking out of a borrowed tomb 100% alive forever and ever and ever and ever more. Jesus Christ, so we get this straight, don't want to run ahead of you, God's only begotten Son stands alone as a man who claims to have lived before Abraham and predicted that he would come forth alive out of the, out of the tomb. C.S. Lewis, name familiar? Right. What was C.S. Lewis before he became a Christian and a great Christian author? He was an atheist. Here's what C.S. Lewis aptly reasoned. Quote, you cannot simply call Jesus a good man. You just can't call him a good man only. Look, he was either a lunatic who thought he was God and he really wasn't. Three things here that Lewis puts out. Or he was a liar who claimed to be God and knew he wasn't. And the only third option, C.S. Lewis says, is that he is Lord, and he is who he claimed to be, and he is alive forevermore, end of quote. What else do you need? What else, Bob, does this mean to us? I'm glad you asked. Because it also means I can be forgiven. Let's say that together, everybody. I can be forgiven. You say it on your own. The Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. Fill in the book, friends. So who has sinned? Oh, who would all include? Oh. Just imagine, let's do a little exercise here. It's always good for us. Just imagine that in order to get to heaven and have our place there sealed, you ha would have to start here in, uh, I'm going to call it Ellsworth, Maine. I don't, are we in Ellsworth now, or is this, where does that line go? Go through the building somewhere. Yeah. So, Ellsworth or Trenton, we won't argue over that, but you start here in the beautiful, sunny part of Maine, 
And you, in order to know that you're going to make it to heaven, in one single jump, physical jump, on your own, you have to land in California. Now, that would be the opposite of heaven to me. But anyway, uh, let's pretend. And I don't mean that because I've been in some beautiful places in California. Now, we could all try. Where would I be in that scale, I wonder? Well, if I... Don't laugh. You're going to do this, too. If I started up here... Hey, brother, I might make it to here. If I was real lucky, wouldn't break more than a couple ankles, I might make it to the floor here. And some of you, you're quite sporty. You could jump off this platform here, and you might even make it almost to the front row. And some of the younger ones that are over in the queue, they'd, you know what they'd do. I mean, they'd break their neck to get beyond the first row, especially if you made it. Yeah. Uh, keep in mind, we're trying to jump in one jump from here to where? To where? We're not quite there, are we? No. No. Uh, what's his name? Yeah, Ashton Eaton is the world's greatest athlete. And I say that because he's the, the holder of the gold medal uh, in the decathlon event, and he's won it in two in successive Olympics. Uh, he's got to be the greatest athlete in the world. His long jump part of the decathlon, he jumped a little over 26 feet. Right now, the world record uh, for the long jump is over 29 feet. So we take off from here. Where would 29 feet bring me? Anybody? You guys that can get, I, I don't know if it's here or out in the parking lot or where. Somebody help me if you know a little bit about, just guess. It doesn't matter. Where would 29 feet bring me? Would it be all the way back there? Wow, I don't, I'm going to have to take a long run for that. <laughs> There's nobody in here that can do it, so let's not get our minds uh, in, in a stew over that. So the world record is over 29 feet. Uh, so let's just pick a point there. Uh, let's just say in the in the in the aisle between the last two rows. Yeah, right about where you were standing. Yeah, that's, that's our, our mark for the world record for the long jump. So say Ashton Eaton was here today and we could build this thing up, big deal, and he could jump that far. But where was he supposed to land? I mean, yeah, he's 26 feet or 29 feet closer, certainly, than I am or than you are. But is California even in sight? Again, I'm trying to extend the illustration so it hits home here. So here's the truth. We all, capital A, capital L, capital L, we all, including Ashton Eaton, we all fall short. And I know, I'm not, you're not unlike me, and I'm not unlike you in that. I know some people that really, I mean, they, they have fallen short. 
Let's not worry about those people. Let's point the pointy finger this way and say, that it's not about them, it's about me. I've fallen short. So that means if all of us say that, all of us have fallen short. No exceptions. The Bible also says there is none righteous. No, not one. We don't have righteousness. The only righteousness we have is the imputed righteousness of God through our relationship with Jesus Christ. Here's the good news. Jesus died on the cross to become the bridge that spans the gap that we couldn't jump across and will get us from the corner of this platform all the way to the center of California and beyond. I'm glad of that, aren't you? Jesus went to the cross of Calvary and he bridged that gap and now we can get over that span and Colossians 2.14 says, Jesus took our sin. And I, you notice I'm quoting Paul over and over and over and over. If anybody is, is, is fresh on this subject and theme, it's the Apostle Paul. He had a face-to-face encounter with Jesus. He believed in the resurrection more than anything you can imagine. And he wrote some phenomenal stuff. And in Colossians 2.14, he says, Jesus took our sins out of the way, nailing them to his cross. But if he'd never come back from the dead, we'd still be lost in our sins. And when he came forth from the grave, he conquered sin and death. So the greatest seven words ever uttered, the words that shook the world to its very core, were uttered by an angel sitting on a big old rock. And it said, he is not here. He has risen. Believing in the resurrection of Christ is the key factor in obtaining forgiveness. Here's what Paul said in Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I try to make things, you know, clearer, and I think sometimes I... I just take the obvious and cloud it, but how can you possibly with a verse like that? If you confess him with your mouth, some of you have done that, many of you have, some of you haven't, you've yet to do that, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. No mention of church in there, by the way. No mention of good works in there anywhere. No mention of coattail Christianity in there anywhere. No mention of my grandmother read the Bible in there anywhere. Matter of fact, that word saved, we throw it around a lot in evangelical circles. So I like to answer the question that people ask me sometimes. So what would I be saved from? Saved from the punishment for your sin, which is hell. Well, why doesn't the Bible say, believe in your heart that Jesus was born of a virgin? If I believe that, do I make it? No. Believe that Jesus walked on water. So if I really believe that miracle, will I make it? No. Or believe that Jesus healed a blind man. Would that get me in? No. Why? Because it is the resurrection that makes Jesus totally unique among all the people who have ever set foot on this globe. The only way you can have your sins forgiven is to confess him with your mouth and believe in your heart the resurrection 
of Jesus. What else can all this mean? It means, my friend, that you and I don't have to fear death. I've noticed something about people in Western society, U.S., Canada. I'll, go, I'll just go that far. That's my range of knowledge. They don't like to talk about death. We always insert some other word. I love this one. Yeah, so if something happens, you mean if you die? No, if I, you know, if I get sick and something happens. We don't like to talk about death. Oh, yes, Granny died, but now she's the most beautiful butterfly. I, no, no, I have had people in this church who believe that when Granny left, she immediately became a butterfly. You don't become anything else. Oh, I like this one. They even write this up in obituary sometimes. Yep, Papa died and he got his wings. Well, I didn't see them sprouting before he left, so he must have got those in a hurry. What would he want wings for? Or she was such a beautiful person. Now she's an angel. Can I tell you something? Nobody ever becomes an angel. Read Billy Graham's book on angels. Angels are angels. Humans are humans. And never the two shall be changed into the other. Oh, yes, dear sister, she was something else. I can just picture her now. She's floating on that cloud. I don't even use the harp analogy. We've used that so much. I'm like, oh, take it away. I mean, I've met a lot of people in this life who are floating on a cloud. I meet them every day. <laughs> Americans don't like to talk about death. We avoid the use of those words. We use the word passed on. If something should happen, well, something happens every day to everybody everywhere. What are you talking about? Does something happen? Well, I got out of bed today. That happened. I brushed my teeth. That happened. I ate a banana. That happened. What are you talking about? If something happens, you know what I mean? Oh, that. Okay. We talk about the dearly deceased. The short form of that word is dead. Say, are you making fun of this? Not at all. Because human beings are the only creatures that know they're going to die. And they're desperately trying to forget about it. Many people fear death because they believe death is the end. No wonder they fear it. Look. If there was a 1 in 10 million chance that what I'm preaching this morning is true, it'll do two things. It'll enhance your life like nothing else, and it'll assure you of a great eternity. And if I'm wrong, nothing lost, except your eternal estate, perhaps. 
been quoting everybody and their dog this morning, so I want to quote Bertrand Russell, because when you talk about atheism, you've got to include this 20th century philosopher. He was, a, he was an avowed atheist to his death. As he was approaching death, just before turning into a butterfly, that was in 1970, he wrote these words, I quote. Now listen to these words. The life, the life of man is a long march through the night, surrounded by invisible foes, tortured by weariness and pain, towards a goal that few can hope to reach, and where none can tarry long. One by one as they march, our comrades vanish from our sight, seized by the silent orders of omnipotent death. Thank goodness, end of quote. Would you please compare that to the words of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, in John's Gospel, chapter 11, verse 25, where he said at the grave of his friend, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. So because of Jesus' resurrection, we don't have to fear death. I'm going back to 1 Corinthians 15, if I may, down near the end of it in verse 54. Death has been follow, uh, swallowed up in victory, Paul said. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But we're not under law now, are we, in Christ? Thanks be to God. He gives us the victory, gives us the victory. He's the greatest giver of all. God so loved that he what? Gave. He gives us the victory, 1 Corinthians 15, through our Lord Jesus Christ. I love those verses. This little story that, that I've told before of a mom who took her two children, two young children, to a park one day. It was a lovely spring day, and she, she had them out. And she, she had a son who was her firstborn, and then a younger daughter who was a little younger than, uh, than, than the boy. And they were enjoying a little picnic and having fun, playing, running around, so on. And suddenly a bumblebee came. Boy, nothing can, nothing can tear up a nice little picnic more than a bumblebee or a wasp or a hornet or something. And it seems in my book, it seems that they love attention. The more you move around and say, oh, no, there he is, here he comes, I hear him, the more that invites him to come. Just sit still, let him go, do his business, whatever. But anyway, you know, I was going to say kids can't do that, but most adults I know can't either. So suddenly... A bumblebee flies up and lands on the sun on the boy's arm. He went to brush it away, but the bee stung him. And that can hurt. I could tell you a bee sting story sometime, but this would not be the place. He, be he began to cry because it was hurting. The pain was bothering him. You ever get a bee sting? How many ever got a bee sting? Does it pain? Does the pain hurt? Yeah, sure. So the bee's still buzzing around, and the little sister has gone not so. I mean, she's like just beside herself, terrified. And she starts screaming, naturally, screaming in fear. And mom had a wet cloth, and she put the wet cloth on her son's arm. And that took a little of the sting out. And then she took her daughter up in her arms, and she said, sweetheart, settle down. Don't worry. And she took the wet cloth from her son's arm. She said, look at your brother's arm. You see that little black stinger? 
A bee can only sting you once because he leaves a stinger when he stings someone. And that old bee can buzz and he can bother you all he wants, but he can't sting you because your brother already took the stinger. And the reason I tell that story is it makes me think of what my Savior, the Lord Jesus, did for me. It makes me think of what inspired the Apostle Paul to write what he did in 1 Corinthians 15. It makes me think of what a beautiful picture this is, a picture of Jesus and all he's done for us. Jesus took the sting of death in his own body. And since his resurrection, death can buzz you, and death can bother you, and death can haunt you, but praise God, it can't sting you, for Jesus has taken the sting out of death. Elwood McQuaid wrote a powerful poem describing how Jesus conquered death. It's entitled, Death Meets His Master. The story of the poem begins just after Jesus is taken down from the cross and he's being placed in the tomb. And Father Time enters into a conversation with King Death. Father Time met pale King Death sitting by a tomb. Hello, old friend, I guess you're here to seal somebody's doom. You might say that, replied Death as a smile slid up his face. Inside reposes that Jesus man who said he'd save the race. Time said, say, why are you guarding just one grave with all your vast domain? Seems like you'd be out rambling around, smiting folks with pain. Death said, well, this one, this one's something special. He challenged me, they say. Said he'd rest here just three days and then stir and walk away. Now, I'm the conqueror, you know. They don't talk up to me. When I step in to cut them down, it's for eternity. And by the way, it's a rather lengthy poem. I won't read it all. But for each of the next two days, Father Time stops by the, uh, the tomb to visit and, uh, Death and see if he's still there. And Death is supremely confident all this time. And he's arrogantly sitting there and he states that he's certain Jesus will, will stay in the tomb and he's not coming out, not after two days, not after three days, not after ten days, ever. So now I want to pick up the narrative in the poem on the third day. Can I? The next day, time was quite surprised to see death quivering on the ground in frightful agony. His eyes were set, his throat was marked, his clothes in disarray. It wasn't difficult to see that death had had his day. What happened, death? said Father Time. What makes you look so sad? I've never seen you shake this way or look and so scared and bad. Death pulled himself up on a rock, looking sick and humble, hung his head and wrung his hands, and Time could hear him mumble. I was sitting here before the dawn, about to take my stroll, when all at once this whole wide world began to reel and roll. That great big stone jumped off the door and skipped on down the hill. Then everything grew dark and quiet, seemed like the earth stood still. 
And then I saw him standing in the door. He didn't move or speak. Just looked at me and all at once I felt so tired and weak. He came and got a hold of me and threw me to the ground. Put his foot here on my neck and he took my keys and crown. Two angels came to talk with him. They glistened like the sun. And Jesus said, the plan's all finished. Redemption's work is done. Forgive me, I get a little emotional at this point. Time and death met once again. Off yonder by the gate. How are you, death? asked Father Time. I've wondered about your fate. Death said, I'm just a servant now. There's little time to roam. I just push open this old gate and help the saints get home. Thank you, Elwood McQuaid. Death meets his master. Even though you die, you shall live again. He who believes in me shall never die. Billy Graham. Name sound familiar? I may have ever heard of him. I may have ever heard him. Undisputably the most prominent preacher and evangelist of the 20th century. He borrowed and adapted a stirring remark from the most prominent gospel preacher and evangelist of the 19th century. None other than Dwight L. Moody. When Dr. Graham said this some years ago, Someday you will read or hear that Billy Graham is dead. Don't you believe a word of it. I shall be more alive than I am now. I will just have changed my address. I will, I will have gone into the presence of God. Woo! I mean, this last few days, Billy's been riding all around. A lot of North Carolina, and, and, and then tonight they're, they're heading to the Capitol in Washington, and he, he's going to lie in repose there for a couple of days. By the way, you can check your history book. Not too many non-government officials or elected people ever get that honor. And there he'll be respected for two days, and then... And then be flown back to Charlotte for a service on Friday. I got to tell you something. When I heard the news, and I, and I just, I listened to several, I was listening late last night again to some more. I want to get some more input on this. How people were explaining it, if they could. The only one that really explained it was Mike Huckabee. And Mike knows what he's talking about. Kathy Lee Gifford was great. And uh, Rick Warren was super. They were very, very close, very tight. But I thought this all on my own. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, for William Franklin Graham, Jr. Nearly 100 years he graced this planet. And boy, 
That is a welcome, welcome home celebration in heaven that I would love to have seen. Amen? Amen? Yes. You are there, aren't you? Yes. Wow. Wow. Make no mistake, my friend, the world was forever changed when Jesus walked out of that tomb. How do you know for certain that the resurrection of Jesus is a historical fact even. Let me compare it to another uh, historical fact. On October the 19th, 1781, British General Charles Cornwallis surrendered to George Washington at Yorktown. That was the last battle of the Revolutionary War, and it led to our nation's independence. How many of you were there when the British General Cornwallis surrendered to George Washington at Yorktown. Okay, only a few, not too many. How do you know then that it happened? Have you seen a photograph? 1781. Have you watched it on YouTube? Did you see all that surrender on TV and you that that was it right there? How do you know it happened? How do I know it happened? Well, I believe it happened because we have the reliable record of eyewitnesses who were there and recorded it. There's another reason we know it happened. Look around you. Our, no, our nation is no longer a British colony. We don't speak, most of us, with British accents. And we don't have tea and crumpets every afternoon. America runs on Duncan. <laughs> we don't submit to the rule of the queen or the laws of the parliament. We elect our own president. We elect the members of Congress. We are the United States of America. And this is because the American army defeated the British army in 1700. And 81. I wasn't there, but I believe it, even though they have really, really changed the history books and really written out a lot of the important stuff, I still believe that that happened at Yorktown. Likewise, I wasn't there when Jesus walked out of the tomb, but I believe the word of the eyewitnesses. When I look at our world, I realize it's different because Jesus is alive. I think of the millions of Christians over the centuries who've made this world a better place. I think of the Christian influence, the schools, the, the colleges, the hospitals, the charitable organizations. We now lo no longer live under the rule or the reign of death and the grave. We don't. And that's why Bill and Gloria Gaither penned these most powerful words and they set them to music in 1971. Because he lives... I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. And I know, I know, I know, I know that I know he holds my future. And life is worth the living just because he lives. Ladies and gentlemen, let's hear it one more glorious time. You please say it with me those words. He is not here. He has risen. Amen. Great job you did.
Those are the incomparable seven. I'm going to ask for just a moment or two that we have a moment of quiet and a moment of introspection and a moment of personal, individual dealing with the Word of God. I'm going to ask you a question, and I'm going to ask you to answer it. I'm going to ask you to answer it in a real and tangible way. I'm going to ask you if you have ever confessed the Lord Jesus with your mouth, made a public confession of that. And I'm going to ask you, that is, you've told someone else about it unashamedly. And have you ever embraced this 100%, believing in your heart that God hath raised him from the dead? That is the cornerstone of the Christian faith. I'm not asking you to believe about it. I'm not asking you to believe my words. I'm not asking you to believe Christianity is a good thing. Everybody should have a little. I'm asking, have you embraced that in your heart? If you have, I rejoice with you. Heaven rejoices. If you never have, I'm inviting you today, as the, as the angel said, to come and look into that tomb and see. Come and see. And if you're here today and have that decision to make, I'm going to invite you to take that Connect card that's in the seat pocket in front of you. should be one there or one near you. Just put your name down. You don't need all the other information or family history. But somewhere on there, front or back, just indicate that today's the day that you're fully trusting in Jesus Christ as your door to heaven. You're fully trusting him as your personal savior. You're fully believing that indeed he did walk fully alive out of that tomb and lives forevermore. Whatever your decision today, God is ready to meet you at your point of need and heaven is ready to burst open with rejoicing over your turning to our Savior. Here's what I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask the worship team to quietly make their way to their places. While they're coming, I'm going to have prayer. If you're making that decision today, or have made that decision, I'm going to choose to stand here at the front of the auditorium. You know, everyone Jesus ever called, he called publicly. Everyone that Jesus ever invited to come and follow him, he did so in a public setting or in the light of day. And so today, likewise, I'm inviting you to come and identify with the person of Christ. This is not about religion. It's not about your background. It's not about your upbringing. It's not about where you've been, who you've been with, what you've done. It's about where you are right now and what's going on in your heart and your ability and your availability. Come to Jesus in full faith. Whoever you are, wherever you are, standing, seated, 
one side of the room or the other, middle of the room, in front of me, behind me, to the sides of me, doesn't matter. Just leave your place, and I want you to come. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to ask you to say anything. I'm just going to take your hand and bless you and thank you for your decision. And through this song, the first song that we sing, which is so much the theme of our morning, I'm going to stand here. I'm not going to make a big show. I'm just going to stand while we sing. When that song's over, I'm going to move to another area. But while I'm here, come and bring me that Connect card. Or come and take my hand and say, Bob, today's my day, my day of salvation, my day of taking that first step of faith towards him, my day to believe those seven immortal words, the incomparable seven, he is not here, he has risen. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are a risen Savior, a living Savior, a real Savior. We sense your presence in this place today. We know that you have a work of salvation and restoration and, rec and recovery today that you want to do. And we pray that you will unleash your Holy Spirit to do the work that needs to be done in every waiting heart and that we'll be responsive and receptive and loving towards those that are making these all-important life and eternity-changing decisions. And for all of this, we'll give you praise. For we pray in Jesus' name. And the church said, please stand, church. If you